Prada. Good, thank you, brother. So why don't we just open up in a word of prayer, given all that uh, that we all have on our hearts and minds. Um, Father, we uh, just come before you, come before our Lord. We come before his finished work. And we come with minds on how much is yet to come and just how central this all is to your glory and to your praise and to the worship that you so rightly deserve from us. Lord, we are reminded uh, this week that this life is finite and yet it passes from that finiteness to the eternal and the absolute glory of heaven, which is you, where we can finally worship you rightly in all the ways you so richly deserve. And we just praise you for this beautiful promise to set our minds and our hearts on things that are above and what a blessed gift that is at any time in our life, but especially at a time where we, we lose a beloved and heaven gains another saint for eternity. And so we just lift up our hearts in thanks and praise. And we're so thankful to have your word, Lord, and to be able to open it up and to just treasure up the truths that you give us. And Lord, we just lift all these things up in your ever-precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, for those of you that were uh, very, very good um, and went and studied Isaiah, uh, thank you. We'll, we'll absolutely uh, dive into that. But as you could tell, if you did study that, it's a very heavy um, study and in light of of David's uh, passing and and uh, I I just wanted to shift that a little bit for this morning if you'll allow me and it'll be a little bit of a good old-fashioned Bible study of just opening up the scriptures and just letting them fall on our hearts and minds uh, I would encourage all of us to just let's just if we don't get through this, that's fine. But let's just be together. Let, let's let this word um, work in our hearts. Share whatever you might want to share. Um, uh, but just, just let me uh, allow these words to just fall on you. Um, but I, wanna, I do want to start because it does tie back to the passage we've been in. And I want to show you that. Uh, I want to read this passage in Romans 2, 4, and 5. Where Paul says, Or do you presume, remember that, that's look down upon. Do you presume 
on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And we talked last week a lot about repentance being this change in the way we think about God and change in the way we think about sin and, and change in the way we're thinking about our lives and the sins that we're continuing to walk comfortably in uh, and to change that 180 degrees, right? But it begins with a proper thinking about God or to use the big word, theology. To think about God rightly, right? And I, I, uh, I just think that that is such a massively important point, especially today, right? Verse 5 comes in with the, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that, that invokes the thought that we are storing up and there's going to come a day where that, that release is going to take place, and it will. But I think as we'll see this morning, there, there are in God's kindness and forbearance and patience, there is a constant releasing of that wrath so that we can see it we can see it all around us right and I, I think that that's what we'll see as we work our way through the proverbial question why Israel God right and, and I, I don't want to quote Kenneth Copeland <laughs> I assure you Grady goes like that right <laughs> Um, but the things that come out of the man's mouth are just wicked lies. And one of those wicked lies is, if you look through the Bible, God is the biggest loser of the whole Bible. I mean, he created Satan, and Satan rebelled against him. He created Adam, and Adam rebelled against him. The whole humanity that he created plunged themselves into sin and remained there. They, he sent his son and they crucified him. And he goes on and on and on. And God is obviously the biggest loser of the Bible. I think he's being very honest in his seared conscience because he does not see God as the sovereign God that he is, who has plans and decrees that we can't even begin to comprehend, right? Can't even begin to comprehend especially if we're not faithful to the Word of God, right? Listen to this passage in Acts 14, 15, 17 with a little bit of that in mind. And this, the scene in Acts 14 is the desire to worship men, right? Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living 
God. So here's Paul in his ministry living out the very truths he's going to unpack in the book of Romans, which is just, right? So I want you to think about that for a minute as you treasure up your scriptures. Think about the mind and the hand of Paul as he's writing these scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they're coming right out of his own personal experience. What, what a surreal, right? We all know when we're reading scriptures and how wonderfully and living the scriptures are, working their way right into the moments of our life, and how much of a blessing they are. And that was every bit as true of the men that were inspired to write these passages, right? And this is just a beautiful example of that. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, you're going to see this through the reading in Isaiah 40 that we're going to turn to. But it's interesting to me that Paul, whenever he's addressing non-Hebrews, he always goes to creation. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They're without excuse. He's shown it to us through the creation. That's where the pagan sits. So he takes them evangelistically. It's a good, it's a good note, right? That, that, and, and it's very muddy in our religious background today because there's so much messy religion out there. But Paul always took the pagan to creation and started and worked them forward from there. Why? So they could think rightly about God. And that's exactly what he does here. Verse 16, in past generations, it's very um, helpful in understanding God's work across the course of humanity. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Just let them walk. They had the moral conscience on their hearts, but he just let them walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. And I love this, right? For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now there is just a wonderful place to start in your evangelism of someone who doesn't know God from Adam, maybe hates God for all the reasons that they have. That is a wonderful place to just reintroduce the true God in the hopes that the Spirit of God will just put down that man-made God. Right? And that's really what Paul is doing here. So I want to just walk through some passages with that, that thought in mind. And we're really going to be keying back to this passage, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Because I, I just don't think that there's a more comprehensive view of that kindness and forbearance and patience from God than what we see in Israel. And it's, it's, it's so unsettling to see 
how many refused to accept that the promises of God to the forefathers of Israel are permanent promises, right? And David spent most of his teaching time reinforcing this point over and over and over again. Why? Because if God gives up on Israel after he's made all those promises, what on earth do we have to stand on in the promises he's made us that we stand on? Right? If that's all true, <laughs> and those promises are blown out of the water by God, then, then Mark, we're, we're right back in a lot of that soteriology of the jail. You gain your salvation, you lose your salvation. You earn your salvation, you lose your salvation, right? Just look at the way this unpacks in Isaiah 40. And we're just going to kind of work through a handful of passages to give us this, this flow of Isaiah 40, which, by the way, is a, a transition point in the book of Isaiah where you have spent 39 chapters of condemnation on Israel, on all the nations, on all their leaders, on all their rulers, and yet Isaiah is moved by the Holy Spirit to turn this corner in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And, and you'll see as this unpacks what the Holy Spirit is doing through Isaiah is he is taking all the truths that are yet to come and he's casting them out into the future. But yet he's laying out these markers along the way that Israel's going to see as a constant foretelling of what is going to come. Now just listen to these next five passages from Isaiah 43 through 8. Here comes the, the cast promise. A voice cries. Isaiah 40 verse 3. In the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So where does he take us? Right in the midst of their horrendous judgment. There's one coming. It's the Genesis 3.15 promise. 
There's one coming. Verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. And we all know this, but it's good to be reminded that the foundation that we stand on through the midst of all of our trials, right up to the departure of life, is the word of God and the promises of God and the God of those promises and the importance of thinking rightly about that God who makes promises that he keeps. But the thing is, there's a mystery in the way he fulfills those promises, right? That's found only in the truths of Scripture. And it leaves an awful lot of people very confused, very confused about the God whom we worship. And that is why the Lord has come to Isaiah and is, is giving him these passages. Look at 2 Corinthians 417 with your finger there in Isaiah 40 for a minute. 2 Corinthians 417. Here's Paul's version. And I think you can safely say that if Paul was the Hebrew of Hebrews, if he was the very top of his, right, his training, uh, his learning under Gamaliel, if he was at all that he says he was and he was, then you can rest assured that these passages just flowed through his soul, these Old Testament passages, because they were what they had, right? You can see that in 2 Corinthians 4.17, which says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as much as I'm going to miss my brother, this is where he is. And this is where we're headed if Christ is our Savior, if he is our righteousness. And he's revealing the certainty of those promises through the absolute of all people groups, undeserving Israel. Is that not his point? His thoughts are not our thoughts. We can't even fathom that kind of kindness, forbearance, and patience, right? Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal, the word of God, and the promises they give us, and the proper under... That should make every one of us absolutely 
immersed in the Word of God, seeking the Spirit for understanding and wisdom to just be grounded in these truths because that's how we're soon not shaken in a world that is absolutely rattling apart again and again and again. And just like our sanctification has us on a slope like that that's just zigzagging all the way up that slope with sin, right? This world is on a slope like that and it is doing the same thing, convulsing all the way down, all the way down, right? And we, we had better get that right. Well, we're not going to be looking up at the eternal things. We're going to be looking here, wringing our hands, right? And, and Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now there's a passage that ought to just make you cling to the word of God. Absolutely cling to the word of God. And, and particularly in this time today, Boy, playing loose and fast with God's word like so many do today ought to just strike the fear of the Lord in us, right? Because there is so much loose and fast treatment of God's word out there. And we run across these people all the time. <laughs> all the time. Matthew 5.18 on this same passage for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, right? It really just flowing out of, out of our Lord and out of Paul and out of Isaiah, this very truth that you see from Isaiah 40. Now look at Isaiah 40, verse 10 and 11. Because now he is going... So, so think about where Israel was as Isaiah is writing this, right? They're, they're headed into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Everything they've ever known and trusted in and enjoyed from the Lord is about to just be absolutely shattered. And in the passage we just looked at, the hope and the promise and the comfort comes from there's one who is coming, the voice crying in the wilderness, right? And now he's going to cast it even farther than that one. So there were two points in the, in the future of God's plan that the Israelites could see from these passages but not fully discern them. He knew they were going to happen. They knew they were going to happen. But they never saw the cross coming. And most of them cannot even fathom what is yet to come. But yet here it is in Isaiah 40:10. Verse 11, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So we see in Isaiah 43 through 8, 
this coming of this one. And then we see the consummation of the second coming of this one and all the things that he's going to do. Dr. MacArthur says on Isaiah 40, 10 and 11, at his second coming, Christ returns with power to defeat his enemies and gather the dispersed of Israel to their land, which is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, and we see it in Revelation 19. His arm, from verse 11, a picture of God's omnipotence, the same arm that powerfully scatters the Jews all over the earth in judgment, is to overcome Israel's oppressor and to tenderly feed and lead his flock right back to him. Utterly undeserved, right? And what is most shocking is the means by which he regathers Israel. If you see that tribulation period through that first three and a half years and the second three and a half, that first three and a half years is the rapture of the Bible believers. It's gone from the planet. All they have is the memory of the church. The truth bears are gone. Second Thessalonians implies that the restraint of the Holy Spirit is let go. And that produces a false peace for three and a half years for the sole purpose of gathering Israel from all the nations back to Jerusalem. And the intent of Satan is to bring them into that snare and destroy them. And yet the Lord says, I will lead them. I will care for them. I will lead them out and protect them, right? As part of those, those ongoing promises. It's interesting, this passage in Isaiah 40, where it says, Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him let me just read Revelation 22:12, where it simply says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Same exact message, the continuity of God throughout the scriptures. Verse 13, and this is a little bit of the, the Job transition from Job 38, 39, 40, right? Where Job and all of his buddies are really questioning God. Kind of like, did God really say? That reminds you guys of anything, right? The constant, that subtle and constant work of Satan is to doubt God. And in that doubt, begin to think humanly about that God. And pretty soon, if you're not careful, you have a God that is of our own making and not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible, even for the believer, as they're maturing their way through their sanctification, should be shocked by the God of the Bible. He shocks me. Passages like this shock me, right? Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 40, 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord 
Here it comes. Here comes the smackdown, right? And what man shows him his counsel? Right? This is Paul saying, who are you, O man, to question God? Who are you? Verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the ways of understanding? Right? Pointing to the incomparable wisdom of God. And it just makes me think about 1 Corinthians 2.16. And this is this beautiful, continuing revelation that we get from God. Right? Because that, that is just, between that and Job, that is just a shut your mouth. Shut your mouth, right? But look what it says, this side of the cross for us. 1 Corinthians 2.16. Same exact message. For who understands the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Is that not the exact same message? But look at what the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to add. But we have what? The, isn't that stunning? We have the mind of Christ. What does that tell you? Right? This is the mind of God. This is the mind of God revealed to us so that we may know Him and know His thoughts and know His ways. Right? Now we're going to see it really tie into Romans. Go to Isaiah 41. Look at verse 8. And I, I just found this passage to be so... Well, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen... The offspring of Abraham, my friend. <laughs> you, you ever notice how many times when God would have been fully justified to say it's over Israel, you have this beautiful but I made the promises to the fathers, to Abraham. I made the promises to your forefathers and I'm going to keep it for them. <laughs> Verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, to you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. But boy, could we sure insert into there, they sure deserved to be cast off, didn't they? What, what does that conjure up in your heart? 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. Even when you think I would or I could, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he gives us Israel as the picture of this. And the believer has those promises. And we will gloriously see them fulfilled. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. I was talking to a man last night about this very subject. Why? Grady and I were why? Why does he save us, reveal all these beautiful truths to us, and leave us in this bag of flesh that is hell-bent on sin? And it's a war. We need the armor of God. Why? And it's exactly so that to him be the glory. To him be the glory. That's why we take the crowns and we throw them back at his feet. Because every single thing we did for the kingdom, Ephesians 2.10 says, he prepared beforehand so that we would walk right into them. <laughs> and sometimes those calls come totally unexpected. And man, we ought to just go when the Lord calls us into a circumstance where we have the privilege of witnessing this glorious Christ, right? It's all to his glory. And he says in verse 10, fear not. <laughs> for, for I am with you. I think about David and how much he suffered. And the Lord never left him. Never left him. And he's not going to leave any of us. What precious words these are. In the midst of a very dark cloud over Israel. Right? So who's he speaking to? Is he speaking to the mass of apostate Israel? No. He's speaking to those. He is speaking to all of them. But he's particularly speaking to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Because they believe God. As the old time he's saying goes, at his word. Right? They believe God at his word. Right? He says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed. And there's, there it is. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Don't be confused by this. I will judge sin. And it'll, it'll either be placed on my son, whom I will give you, or you will pay for it for eternity. From where does my righteousness come? That's the question that every one of us had better be able to answer. Right? For I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you in my righteous hand. And Mark, you can take that this afternoon and know that that's his promise to you as you get up there and just glory in our Lord on behalf of our dear brother. Fear not. 
I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Now go to Romans 11.28 with that entire thought on your heart. And Israel... And this promise God makes in light of the judgment that's coming upon Israel. And on the other side of the cross, this precious Hebrew of Hebrews, self-righteous to the maximum, knocked off his high horse, left for three days with nothing but the law condemning him. How did Isaiah 51, 2, and 3 have to flow through his heart when he was sitting there, blinded, not eating, not drinking, for three days and three nights, not sleeping, right? And here it is coming out of that same new man where he has come through his encounter with Christ to understand Christ's eternal plan for Israel. And I'm not so sure he really could get over it. <laughs> he says in Romans 11:28, "As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake." Okay, now pay attention. Who's the enemy and who's your sake? Your. Who's the your? That's us. They're enemies of the gospel for your sake. Right? But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their, here it is. What's it say? Forefathers. He's a God of his promises. He made a promise to the forefathers. And for the sake of election, which is an absolute manifestation of his sovereign glory, the one who has written the end from the beginning is his election. Right. And we don't have to say a word about how mistreated and rejected that doctrine of God's sovereignty is in the church today. We don't want a God who is sovereign. We want a God that is much more yielding to our whims, right? Who's at our mercy than a God whom we are at the absolute mercy of. And the doctrine of election just peels right into that. For they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 29. For the gifts and the calling of God, this is very strong language, are what? Irrevocable. There's where you stand on the promises of God. Right? For just as you were at one time disobedience, and now he's talking to us again, the pagans, right? The audience of this letter to the, to the church of Rome, the Jews, the Gentiles, the mature believers, the immature believers, at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Who's there? Israel. God brought the condemnation upon the generations of Israel in order to push the gospel out of Israel and take it to the rest of the world. It helps you realize why the dispersions in Jerusalem were so important. What did he do? He blasted the gospel to the ends of the world through that persecution, horrendous persecution. 
Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And Paul just can't get over it. And this is Paul's expression of that beautiful harmony of his human reaction and the Spirit's inspiration. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? What's he talking about there? Trying to find favor with God. Losing sight of which side of the cross you're on. And not realizing that any effort to find favor with God does nothing but condemn us. Because the favor that God finds in you is the righteousness of Christ through believing on what Christ has done on your behalf. That is what we stand on alone. It is, as Paul so beautifully says in Philippians 3.9, it is not my righteousness. It is on Christ alone, right? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And this is just, just glorious. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. It's always about the second Adam, right? Now let me just end with this passage this morning. Go to Isaiah 42 in this continuing uh, revelation of, of the promises that have been made from Genesis 3.15 through Genesis 17 through Genesis, all the promises made to Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob. It's this promise of this coming one from Genesis 3.15. It, it is the first time we see the Savior And here he is in Isaiah 42, verse 1. And I want you to pay attention as I read this passage, the comprehensiveness of this revelation. You see Christ, the beloved, the righteous, the gentle, the suffering, the silent, the servant, the one who perseveres, the creator, life giver, sustainer, Redeemer, and most of all, the glorious one who will give his glory to no one. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Just let your heart be lifted up that this is your Lord. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The first elect. That's this one. The first elect. Within the solitariness of the triune, eternal God, 
before anything ever existed. The first election was for the sun to be this one. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created, and here we go back to creation, who created the heavens and this passage we were talking about this morning, sweetheart, stretch them out. You know how long it took us to figure out and all the technology that was required to do it to realize that the stars are actually moving away from us. Go study it. He says to Job, have you considered the snowflake, Job? And as we were joking this morning, Job didn't go, well, let me pull out my, my super high power flash microscope and take a bunch of pictures of 100,000 snowflakes and come to the discovery that not a single one of them is the same. That's the God of creation, right? Who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And I think we all struggled with how we saw our brother's life come to its close. But we don't have to struggle one second in knowing that that was the very precise moment that God decreed for that man to go to be with him. No matter all the stuff that happens, and it's kind of hard to watch when it's so personal, God has decreed that very moment at which he's going to take that breath away. And it is beautifully perfect and precise in his eternal plan, right? And there's a good one to hang on to, right? On a day like today. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Verse six, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Remember Romans 1? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and their lights went out. It all hinges on how we view God in the midst of all of the revelation that he's given us about himself. 
whether it be the pagan and the creation or the Jew and the sacred scriptures, right? To open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisoners, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. nor my praise to carved idols. And Paul goes through an exhaustive list of those in Romans 1. Right? So I'm trying to show you how Paul is just unpacking the continuity of what the scriptures have said all along. Right? But I think about that. I will give my glory to no one. And it ought to just be like nails on a chalkboard when we see the countless ways that this glory of God is just stolen by man and taken for himself. And, and who is that? Who is it in Isaiah that says, I, 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 I will do this, I will do that. I, that was Satan, right? That's why we have, if the Lord wills, right? given to us I am the Lord that is my name my glory I will give to no other nor my praise to carved idols verse 9 behold the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth I tell you of them Really important, isn't it, Jeffrey, when you read that? Especially when you take the eschatology of things that are yet to come and the downward slope of this world and where it's heading and why it's heading that way. Because he has told us those things that are yet to come. And the question is, do we believe him? And do we understand our role in that downward slide and darkness that ensues in this planet, right? And I can assure you, it is not to go into some monastic life and hide away the light that's been given to us. Because the Lord has his people and we don't know who they are. And if you look at the people that God has saved over the course of humanity, most of them sure won't look like the kind of people that are about to get saved. The thief on the cross, right? Peter. <laughs> right James and John could could we just wipe out this whole city would that be alright could you just bring the thunder and the lightning down and just wipe them out because they're really nasty people right so I just wanted to walk us through that in light of the kindness and forbearance and patience of our Lord with Israel, the certainty of his promises, and the hope that is in every one of us based on what this blessed servant of God has done on our behalf, right? And just the joy that our brothers and sisters who have gone before us are enjoying right now in heaven, right?
So let's pray. Father, we thank you as we wind down this morning and enjoy our corporate worship and come together as we give our praise to you for our dear brother David and the life that he has lived and how many ways he's touched so many of us with his love for you, with his love for your word and his diligence in teaching that word so thoroughly. Lord, we just lift up the entire Kemp family. We just lift up Canton Bible as we just prepare our hearts to just love on this family and one another. And Lord, that we would do this always for your praise and for your glory and in your precious name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, guys.